Good morning. The title of the sermon today is Beauty and the Beast, part one. Beauty and the Beast. Yes, after the movie by Walt Disney where an arrogant, proud king or prince is transformed into a beast under a curse until he learns the lesson appointed to him to show kindness and care for others. Yet this one's a little bit different, as we will see. This is the original. It's better than the remake. And so uh, today, welcome. We are in Daniel 4. Before I get into the substance of the sermon, uh, a a small announcement, a pre-announcement before the sermon uh, to let you know, with the uh, news of the virus spreading and various things with nature, many of you are wondering, what are we doing as a church? What are we going to do as a church? Uh, so in the event it spreads more in Maui next week, or if you feel sick for any reason, uh, a few things. Number one, uh, whatever you need to do to feel safe and comfortable given your health conditions, your season of life, uh, I understand for different seasons, maybe, uh, I, I might have fewer concerns over my personal health than you, and yours are very warranted, perhaps, if you're in a very season with a compromised immune system or something of that nature. So, we will be, and today actually are, right now, uh, live streaming to Facebook, uh, to Facebook Live. And so, you will be able to watch it from home uh, next week and the following week. Uh, perhaps afterwards on Facebook Live. The camera's right back there, and there's a big giant clock above it telling me when to be quiet. Um, I tell it what to do. No. Um, But uh, there's a camera there, and so by all means, if you need, if you feel that for the safety of yourself and your family, uh, you would like to stay home next week or the next two weeks due to the spread of the virus, then by all means, we will be streaming online. Um, temporarily. You say, what happens after that? You got to come. You got to come. But uh, we will be monitoring it. Again, maybe the virus won't be on island next week at all, in which case I hope to see all of you. Um, But if it is, then do as you feel led by the Lord. Um, But that's there. The second thing we want you to do, if you happen to get sick for some reason, please let us know. Sometimes people don't like to let me know when they're uh, sick or have something like that, uh, please let us know, even if it's just the flu or something like that. At the very least, we want to pray for you, but that we might also care for you as well. Uh, and so please let us know in that regards. And for the love of all things holy, wash your hands, please. <laughs> Always wash your hands. That's just good practice anyways. With soap, preferably, um, but wash them. All right. Without further ado, none of that counts towards my sermon time. Amen? Amen? All right, so uh, let's get rolling. If you're just joining us for the first time, we are in the book of Daniel. We're working through the prophet Daniel. Uh, We just finished chapter 3, the account of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Uh, And I I told you we're taking this a little bit differently from uh, when I worked through Genesis or Exodus, and uh, those I tend to took uh, bigger chapters, bigger chunks, or John's Gospel or Mark's Gospel, if you were here for that, uh, when we went through those things. We took bigger chapters, we moved faster to get the full scope of the narrative. What we've done here, what we're doing with Daniel, is I could preach chapter 4 in one sermon. I could preach chapter 3 in one sermon or 2 in one sermon. Arguably, I could do the whole book of Daniel in one sermon, but, but we are slowing down 
and tracing the narrative arc that the scripture writer has for us. We're looking at the setting, the plot, the characters. We're following the rising uh, conflict, the, the plot, so to speak, as it thickens, we might say sometimes. We're going to see the climax, the resolution, and the following action. And all of what we're doing is we're zooming in, we're taking a sermon and taking one or two of those components and zooming in on each of them to have more time to see what God's Word has for us. Uh, and, and so what we're doing in the process, and, and what I've told people, and you'll find in larger uh, evangelical circles, we are practicing expositional preaching, and the way a story works is generally there are as many main points to learn from as there are characters, as there are characters, main characters in the story. So in this narrative, the main characters, there's a few of them. And so we could learn a lot from them. Uh, one of the main characters is Nebuchadnezzar. He gets the most screen time, but he is not the main character today, is he? Who is the main character in the story? God. God is. Nebuchadnezzar's talking all about what somebody, namely the Most High, has done for him. God is truly the focus of this narrative, but Nebuchadnezzar is a huge character in this narrative. Daniel would be another. We have some minor characters, the wise men of Babylon, the, the Chaldeans, the enchanters, the magicians. Uh, magicians, if you were to say short for magicians, maybe if you made a nickname for magicians, what might you call them? Magi. Huh, interesting. Did that ring a bell with some, something else in scriptures later? Hmm, very interesting. I wonder if there's a connection. There is. Anyways, that's our Christmas sermon. But uh, the magicians, the wise men, the enchanters, they are a sub-character. They together function as a unit, you see? And so we can learn something from each of these characters. That's the way stories are meant to convey truth. And so we are looking at these different elements of the story. Hopefully our time together is profitable and allows for us to zoom in on some of these things. As we've seen throughout Daniel's message to the exiles in Babylon, a central issue throughout this time has been the assertion, the assertion of Babylonian supremacy over the God and people of Israel. This is a central issue they're having to wrestle with, the assertion of Babylonian supremacy over and against the God of Israel. If you're just joining us for the first time, this is easy to see. In the ancient world, two peoples go against each other to battle. One peoples, they have their gods and they pray to their gods for victory. The other peoples has their gods and they pray to their gods for victory. They clash. The winner has the superior gods, you see? And so when Israel is defeated by Babylon, you see the statement, Babylon is superior. And so Israel's wrestling with these things, the assertion of Babylonian superiority. And what we've been seeing is God, the true God, is systematically dismantling any concept of their supremacy. And he is showing, no, 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 Nebuchadnezzar, you are in the position you are in because I put you there. I let you win. I am supreme. And so we have seen throughout Daniel so far, chapters 1 through 3, 
We have seen the assertion, the superiority of the wisdom of God. We have seen the superiority of the might of God to deliver from the fiery furnace. We are seeing the superiority of the people of God remaining faithful, refusing to bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar, the the superior resilience. And now, today, in this account, we see, we begin to see, what we could say is a knockout punch for Nebuchadnezzar. It's, the, it's the, the final fist to the chin knockout highlight reel for Nebuchadnezzar where he is forced to recognize that God reigns. If we were to use a different picture in the Bible for this, this, would be, this scene would be Jacob wrestling with God in the book of Genesis and the touching of Jacob's hip, putting it out, making him walk for a limp with a limp for the rest of his life. This would be that for Nebuchadnezzar's life. He will be forever changed after chapter 4. He will no longer be the same king that once took power so many years ago. And so in, in, a, in a really trill, real sense, if we zoom out of chapter 4 and you look at the arc of Nebuchadnezzar's life, this is a climax of it. If you look at the pinnacle of Nebuchadnezzar's life and how he is developed over these chapters. This is a climax of a story for him that began in chapter one. So let's pray and see what God has for us today. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. May you grant today that as we see your kingdom endures forever, may we worship you alone. May we be Uh, energized to share this good news, this beautiful message that there is a God in heaven. He does reign, and his reign is a good reign. And only in following you, Father, will we find joy and life forevermore. I pray that if there are any here who are walking in pride, in arrogance, maybe even deceived by their own pride as they look at the ease and comfort of their life, as they look at the, maybe they have lots of intellect and knowledge. If there are any here who are walking in pride, Father, use this time, use your word and your spirit to humble them so that they might be all that you would have them to be and point to your kingdom as superior and worthy of their praise. Lord, I do want to lift up Waihu Community Church Plant. We pray for them. I pray for uh, Pastor Jay and Pastor Rocky, especially Pastor Jay as he just got back in from traveling. Would you strengthen and sustain them? Give them energy to press on in the work you have for them. Give them encouragement. And Father, above all, more than anything, may many hear the good news and be saved in Waihu and Waihe'e. We pray the same here in Kahului. And across these islands, would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen. All right. All right. Number one, the king's mission. Number one, the king's mission. If I had to give you a big idea, a summary statement of these few verses, it'd be this. Not necessarily, this wouldn't be the whole chapter, but of these verses, it'd be this. The climax of our lives is recognizing and proclaiming that God's kingdom is ultimate, not ours. The climax of our lives, of your life, 
is recognizing that God's kingdom is ultimate, not yours. That's the climax of your life. And if you haven't done that yet, you have not reached the climax of your life. Number one, the king's mission, verses one through three. Normally, maybe it's the second point that has all the time. Today, it'll be the first point that takes up most of the time. So number one, the king's mission. He starts out, Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Now, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, for them, their empire was the known world. As far as they could tell, that was it. That covered everything. So in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, he was the king of the world. And so he says to all peoples, he addresses his kingdom. What's happening here? This is a press conference, isn't it? This is a press conference. This is, we would see this if you were at the gym working out, it'd be on all the TVs, CNN, Fox News, C-SPAN, whatever. It'd cover all ABC, CBS, NBC, all of them would be tuned in to this address as the king, the emperor, gives a press conference. There'd be reporters, mics, cameras would be set up. This would be read far and wide, distributed on every signpost, every building, every place where the public gathered. They would read these decrees. This is the Babylonian state of the Union. But this one would be different than the others, wouldn't it? This one would start out similar. This isn't the first time they've heard Nebuchadnezzar or read his decrees that started like this. This one was different. You can't help, as you hear the language, all peoples, nations, and languages, you can't help but think of another place in Scripture, can you? Can you think of it? Do you know where, where my mind's at? Can you read my mind? Revelation 14. Revelation 14, go there if you desire. Ver verse 6, Revelation 14, 6. You can't help but think of this passage. He says this in Revelation 14, 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, here it is, and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Fear God and give him glory. And verse 8 says something peculiar. We can get the entirety of verse 8 up on the screen or look at it on your Bible. Verse 8 says something peculiar. You'll recognize a name there. Fallen. Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is who? Babylon the Great. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Now, some of you maybe weren't here for our time in Revelation, our series in Revelation. What's happening is we're seeing a, a series of visions, and I won't get into the full explanation here, but, but Babylon, in Daniel's time, Babylon becomes a type, a picture of all kingdoms of men that, are set, that set themselves up against the purpose and reign of God. 
and this is the answer that'll come. This is a proclamation that will be said to all peoples, to all nations, to all languages. Babylon is fallen. God's kingdom will reign forever and ever. Align yourself with him. That's the message. That's the true king's message to the world, we could say. The Most High, the King of Kings, that's his message to the world. And so he preaches an eternal gospel. Believe in God, worship him alone. Verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar goes on, and he says this, It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. It has seemed good to me. Just think, here's, here's Nebuchadnezzar. And he's saying now, all peoples, nations, and languages, this seems like a good thing for me, to tell you the signs, the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. What is this? This is a testimony, isn't it? This is the king's testimony. Now, you have to ask, was he genuinely converted at this point? Because we saw prior in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, the king also made points to worship the Most High God, but we also said, or I said, that he was not converted at that time. He was a pluralist. He added God, Yahweh, or Jehovah, however you want to say, he added God to the rest of his gods that he worshiped. He added him, okay, well, we'll worship him as the Most High God. So we have to ask, was he genuinely converted now? Well, you'll have to wait until part three of our sermon series at the end of the chapter to find out whether or not he was converted to the one true God or not. At this point, I think it's safe to say we can say Nebuchadnezzar was a changed man, wasn't he? Whether he was genuinely converted or not right now, we can certainly say he was a changed man, and this is his testimony. He was a humbled king. He was a humbled king, and God had done works for him, shown him signs and wonders, and, and now he wants to show it to everybody. What would have struck the audience initially is these words, to display or to show the signs and wonders. So far, no shock yet. To show the signs and wonders, and here's where the shock would come in, that the Most High God has done for me. All of a sudden, they were like, oh, that's, that's different. You say, what do you mean? What do you mean, Pastor? See, the Babylonians were used to the king bragging about himself. Recall, he is a god, or he claims to be a god. And he is the king. He is the head of state. They were used to him proclaiming how great he was. And so they would have heard this and thought, oh, great. Another proclamation from King Nebuchadnezzar. I wonder what magnificent building project he's completed now. I wonder what new temple he's going to tell us he has built. I wonder, maybe he built a wall. Maybe he built a new wall. Another wall. See, Babylon had a very, very long wall. They had a 17-mile-long wall. 17 miles long. Think about that. How long is 17 miles? That would be from here to Wailea and beyond to McKenna Landing. 17 miles. Think of a wall that long in the ancient world. 
A wall that would stretch from here, built without cranes, without massive steam engines and gasoline and earth movers, all these things. They didn't have any of that, and yet this wall built lasted 17 miles. It was wide enough for two chariots to ride on side by side. Maybe the king's going to tell us, I built a wall, another one. Maybe he's going to say, oh, look, another beautiful garden for my wife, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Here's another one. Maybe he's going to tell us how great he is. See, they were used to the king bragging about himself, about how great the economy is under his reign, how strong their army is, how far-reaching the empire goes, how everything they do is the best and the greatest. This doesn't happen today, does it? Politicians bragging about how great they are and how wonderful their walls are and things of this nature. That doesn't happen today, right? Moving on. But see, this happened back then, no doubt. We actually have tablets of these things, historical artifacts that record these things. They expected the king to talk about himself some more, but to their surprise, this one's different. This time he doesn't display the signs and wonders done by him. This time he says, I need to tell you about what the Most High has done for me. About what the Most High King has done for me. He's done things like told me my own dreams when nobody else could. He's done things like deliver these three men from a burning fiery furnace when I thought nobody else could. He's given me Wise men serving in my court, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are the types of things that the Most High God has done for Nebuchadnezzar. It's good to know that this has been decades now after all these things. So from chapter 3 to chapter 4, we read it like the turn of a page. Maybe it takes 10 minutes, but it's been decades most scholars think it's been about 20 years since the fiery furnace incident. 20 years. Maybe even 30 to 35 years since chapter 1 has passed. About 30 to 35 years entirely has passed. How many of you are 35 years old and younger? Raise your hand. If you're 35 and younger, 35 years old and younger, okay, my hand's up too. Our whole lifetime has passed. Our whole lives has passed by this time. It's been decades since then. See, we read the Bible, we often forget how much time passes in between chapters and pages, and it gives nuance to what the text is communicating, to, to what happened. Daniel himself would have been close to his 50s at this time. And after what follows in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, he's about to describe what happened to him. He can't help but tell others what God has done to everybody under his influence, to everybody within his reach. He can't help but say, this is what God has done for me. We also have to remember the backdrop of, of Nebuchadnezzar's message. We have to remember the backdrop of Daniel's message, the larger prophecy, this message of hope for God's people in exile. What would they have heard 
If you're a Jew in exile and you read about Nebuchadnezzar the king proclaiming praise to your God, to the most high God, would you not hear the Proverbs? The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Would you not read this account of the king losing his mind? Would you not think of this and hear Daniel chapter 2 again? He changes times and seasons. He raises up kings and he takes them away. Would you not hear that if you were a Jew in exile? You also have to remember the language that this is written in originally. This is not in Hebrew, like most of the Old Testament is in Hebrew, Daniel chapter 2 to chapter 7, to the end of chapter 7, is not written in Hebrew. It's written in Aramaic. It's written in Aramaic. The only section in the book written in Aramaic. Why is that significant? You have to recall, Aramaic is the trade language of the world at that time. It's the language of business and economies and finance and trade. Today, it would be akin to the English language. If you do business in the world theater, you will speak English. That's the main trade language of our day. In the first century, it was, it was Greek. Later on, it became Latin. Aramaic was the language of its day. Why is this message written in Aramaic? You have to remember because there is a universal message for all peoples in what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. God didn't just want Israel to know something. He wanted everybody of the day to know what he had done. And so it's in Aramaic. We also find this chapter, chapter 4 and chapter 5, lie at the heart of a chiasm. Now, I mentioned this last week. If you don't know what a chiastic structure is, it's not a huge deal, but it is important for the text and what, what Daniel is doing. Uh, if I could just summarize it, a chiastic structure is a literary device. It's a way of arranging information with parallel ideas across chapters or across large amounts of text. Remember, the original scriptures didn't have verse chapter breakdowns and, and numbers of these things. They didn't have these things. They arranged them in various literary arrangements, and this is one of them. This chapter and chapter 5, generally the center of the chiasm, you could think of a, if I diagrammed it, it would look like an arrow. The tip of the arrow or the center of the chiasm is where the emphasis is in the scripture, with the other points mirroring each other. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 would be the tip of that arrow. They would be the center, the point of emphasis, the culmination. You say, well, what are the parallels? The parallels are chapter 2 and chapter 7. Chapter 2 and chapter 7, you have a vision or dream of four empires. In chapter 2, it's of a statue. Of chapter, in chapter 7, it's the four beasts, four separate beasts. We'll talk about that in September. The next inner points of the chiasm will be chapter 3 and chapter 6. Chapter 3 and chapter 6. With chapter 3, you have deliverance from the fiery furnace for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Chapter 6, you have deliverance from the lion's den with Daniel. Parallel, similar accounts. Smack dab in the middle are chapter 4 and 5, Nebuchadnezzar and his humbling and Belteshazzar telling the king 
what's the handwriting on the wall is. Both are concerned with judgment. Both are concerned with the supremacy of God's kingdom over earth's kingdoms. Why am I going into all of this detail that you probably don't care that much about? Because it's absolutely essential for us to see where God's message puts the emphasis, where God's word wants us to look and highlight and focus on. And what is the focus? The true king has a message for the nations. The true king, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Babylon, not Persia, the true king, the most high, the king of heavens, wants all nations, all peoples, all languages to hear and respond to the message that God's kingdom is the only kingdom that will endure for generations to generations, for all eternity, there is only one kingdom that will stand. Therefore, worship him. That's the message that Daniel wants all peoples to know. Follow God wholeheartedly. Worship him. And you don't hear it from Daniel or from the people of Israel alone. Now you hear it from a pagan king himself. Worship the Most High. This is really an important point to remember. Because even as God will judge Babylon, God will execute wrath and judgment against Babylon. He also has a heart for people in Babylon to know him. You have to remember God's mission So in the first point, the king's mission, I wasn't referring to Nebuchadnezzar, but to God, the king's mission. You have to remember God's mission since the beginning. We could go back to Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. Do you remember the Abrahamic covenant? In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God's heart is for the nations. Even as God judges Babylon, He has a heart for Babylon. God will one day judge this earth, and He has a heart for many people in this world. He wants all peoples to hear of the gospel, to repent, to believe, to place their faith in Christ, and find life in His name. This is God's heart for the nations. That's the true King's mission for everybody to worship Him. Number one, the king's mission. Number two, the king's message. Again, we find this message in verses 4 to 18 is mediated through a dream. Decades after Daniel chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's first bad dream of a giant image, decades after that, we see another dream. Nebuchadnezzar has another disturbing dream at the height of his prosperity, at the height of his success. He says himself, he says, I was at ease in my house. I was living in comfort and prosperity, he would say. All these areas, my my kingdom has advanced. It envelops the whole world. My building projects are mostly complete. I am at ease, prospering. And then he has this dream that disturbs him. And again, there's many parallels to the first dream. His wise men, he summons them all up again. Why why didn't he call Daniel the first time? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But he calls his wise men again. 
He tells him the dream this time. The first time, he didn't tell him the dream. Now he tells him the dream. He tells him the dream, and none of them can tell him what it means. The Aramaic is a little convoluted. It doesn't tell us whether they couldn't tell him what it means or they wouldn't tell him what it means, because even Daniel himself is going to be disturbed at what it means. In any case, they don't tell him. He calls Daniel. He knows Daniel can help him. And he tells Daniel the dream and asks him what it means. Now, we're going to get into the content of the dream next week. Next week, we will get into the content of the dream in chapters 2 and chapters 3. We'll flesh the content out more. What I want to do for now is I want you to notice God's deliverance of the message He delivers the message and provides an interpreter, Daniel. God delivered a message to Nebuchadnezzar, and he provided an interpreter, Daniel. Beloved, we have a message today. You and I have a message today that is better than a dream. It is superior to a vision. It is far outweighs any vague intuition. We have a message today that is crystal clear. Here are the testimony of scriptures. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Hear hear what the scriptures have to say. They say it like this. And this talks to all the people, and I meet a lot of people who are like, man, I, I just, I wish God would speak to me in a vision or a dream. I wish I had these types of things. And Here's what the scriptures tell us. Long ago, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So here it is. Think about that. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Do you know what those many times and many ways are? Dreams, visions, intuition type things, prophets. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But hear this, verse 2. But in these last days, when are the last days? Now. We're not looking for the last days. We're, We're already in them. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. How? Three important words right there. By his son. By his Son. Why do you want a vision when you have the Son? Why do you want a dream when you have the Son? Why do you want a vague oracle when you have the Son whom he appointed the heir of all things? And it says Jesus is the radiance, the image of God himself in man. We have the Son. Long ago, God spoke to people like that through visions and dreams. But now he speaks to us by his Son in his word. What is this? The Bible. And if, this, if you were all my preschoolers, my 72 preschoolers that I talked to on Friday, I asked them, what is the Bible? Erica, what do they say? She's nervous. Her mouth is open. God's holy word. Good job, Erica. You're a ventriloquist. She's sinking down. God's holy word. He has spoken to us by his son in his word. You need not 
look for further revelation than God's holy word. You only need to read it, obey it, and let the Holy Spirit lead you into all truth. So we have a message, we have a deliverer, an interpreter of that message, summed up in the words of Jesus himself. What is your message? Here it is, you ready? Repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will be delivered from the wrath to come. That's the message. Repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will be delivered from the wrath to come. Nebuchadnezzar learned this the hard way, as we're going to find out. But to you today, it is offered freely because Jesus took the hard way on your behalf. I often run into people, often, who wish God would tell them what to do. Man, I just, God, will you tell me what to do? And they don't necessarily mean in a dream or a vision, per se. But they're searching for some connection to the divine, for something more than life. Something bears witness to them that there's more than I can see. And so they're looking for a connection to it. Some search for the wisdom of the East, perhaps Hinduism or, or some other Eastern religion. Those things interest them for a while, but eventually they find the enlightened one's wisdom is insufficient to satisfy the longing of their soul. Some look to the structure and the devotion of Islam. Initially, they find purpose, structure, and devotion, but no redemption. No forgiveness. They look to the New Age rhythms of harmony, unity, peace, love, connection to the universe. But they find these things too vague and without foundation or ultimate direction. Hear me today, friend, if you're here. Sometimes the thing that we are looking for is standing right in front of us, staring us in the eyes. God has spoken. He has shown signs and wonders through Christ. He did miracles, healed many people. His ultimate sign and wonder was he died brutally crucified and rose again from the dead three days later. Jesus came, literally came down to bear witness of the great love of God for you. And maybe you're here today and you grew up in the church. Maybe you grew up with Christian parents or going to church because your grandparents took you there, and for one reason or another, you drifted from Christianity. Maybe you would say, like many, the church is full of hypocrites. True. Maybe you would say, somebody in the church hurt me. Probably true. Maybe somebody in the church even abused you somehow. Maybe it was your parents themselves who were the hurtful ones, and you saw their faith, and it was a sham, and you wanted nothing to do with it. I want to ask you this morning, consider looking past the people who have failed you and look to the person of Christ. Look to Jesus, and you will see a Savior so full of mercy, so full of grace 
and kindness and justice and righteousness and patience and power and strength and might. Look to him. Trust in him. His people will fail you every time. He never fails. Look to Jesus and you will find the rest your soul desperately seeks. Look to him this morning. That's what Nebuchadnezzar found. May you find it as well. Let's close our time with some application. Number one, number one, God's work is a lifetime in the making. Let's just bring it home. God's work is a lifetime in the making. What does that mean? Let's get it even more nitty-gritty. Be patient with people around you. Be patient with people around you. You are all very good at being patient with me. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I should say most of you are all very good. No, <laughs> no, you're, you are all very patient with me. I, I really am thankful for that. I would plead with you, be patient with others around you who are not me, whom you do not love as much, perhaps, whom you need to grow in love for. Be patient with people around you. Nebuchadnezzar's journey to this point in life literally took a lifetime, and he messed up big time in the process, didn't he? Big time, many times. I doubt you spent what today would be millions of dollars to construct a statue to have people worship you and threaten to throw them into fiery furnace. You probably haven't done that to that degree. Nebuchadnezzar messed up big time, many times. Be patient with those around you. God's work is a lifetime in the making. Just think how long it took for you to finally give your life to Christ, to finally wholeheartedly follow Jesus. Be patient with people around you. That includes outside the church, for sure, and inside the church. Sometimes, sometimes we forget that sanctification or the process from which a new Christian, a baby Christian, is conformed into a mature Christian, sometimes we forget that that's a process right? That's a process. New baby Christians come in, and they don't come out with perfect theology or, or smooth edges. Seasoned believers, sometimes we can grow impatient with that. We can grow overly critical of newer believers and the roughness of their edges or theology. If we're not careful, we just want to hang out with people who have all of their theological ducks in a row first. Or, perhaps we, we only encourage those, we reserve our encouragement only for those who say things we 120% agree with, rather than searching for, for truth and points of truth and trying to cultivate those and fan them to flame and being patient with the other elements. Likewise, so if that's seasoned believers who can struggle with patience, new believers or those who are learning a lot for the first time can grow impatient or disillusioned with the current state of many Christians. They want change, they see something fresh, and they want change now. Unintentionally, 
unintentionally, they can become critical of the church or believers and without knowing it, begin to write off people and the church and before they know it, rather than using this newfound life, this newfound zeal, this newfound knowledge to serve the church and call it to action, the bride of Christ, unknowingly and in their immaturity, they can become an instrument of Satan to tear the church down, sowing discord and discontentment. Seasoned believers, new believers, be patient with people in your life. We are all on the road to the celestial city. Some are strong, some are a little bit feeble, some are fast, some are slow, some walk with the limp, but we will all get there together. Let us be patient with one another. Number two, so that's one, be patient with people in your life, that's in your family, in your church, at your work. Number two, God's mission is your mission. God's mission is your mission. We saw last week that it was actually the exiles that God sent into captivity that he was merciful with. It was actually the exiles sent into captivity that he was merciful to. That means if you are in exile, then you are on mission. If you are in exile, then you are on mission. Trick question. Who all is in exile this morning? Ah, see, sleepers. Who all is in exile this morning? Everybody. The New Testament calls us exiles in this world. This is why John in Revelation, in the Apocalypse of John, this is why John draws so heavily on Daniel. This is why he constantly references the book of Daniel, because John looks and he sees today the people of God are in a hostile culture, in exile, and John beckons the church to remain faithful and not to bow the knee to the beasts, to the culture, to the state, and to the influence of Satan. See, you are all on exile, therefore you are all on mission. Like Nebuchadnezzar, here it is, you ready? You're on mission, like Nebuchadnezzar, tell people what God has done for you. Tell people what God has done for you. Tell them how great of a provider he is. Tell them how merciful of a king he is. Tell them how much you have been forgiven and how kind he is to them or would be to them. Tell people what God has done for you. When you tell people... A lot of times we call this our testimony, right? When you tell people, remember, your testimony is not your autobiography. Your testimony is not your story. Like Nebuchadnezzar, yes, it includes you. Yes, you are part of it. But it is not about you. It is about what God has done in your life. It is about his mission and his message. So your testimony shouldn't make you look like the hero. Should not make you look like the hero. Sometimes when I hear people give their testimony, it's almost a running commentary on how they've overcome adversity. A little bit of God talk will be sprinkled in there, here and there, but it's almost a testimony about how I overcame hardship and adversity. Your testimony should be about God. 
It should contain his message as Nebuchadnezzar's message contained God's message. His kingdom is forever and ever. His dominion is supreme. It should be the message of God. It should contain the gospel message in there. For example, my name was Randy. Dude, good to meet you. I grew up in the church and and I thought I knew God and all these things and It's not about how great I was, and God just made me better, and I made a few mistakes, but I overcame those. No, it's I was a sinner living for my own way. For me, it looked like this, this, and this. But God was merciful to me at camp, and I gave my life to him. I turned from my sins, and I trusted in him for the forgiveness of those sins, and he saved me, and I'm not perfect now, but I'm still changing. I'm still growing I have a church family that loves me and bears with me in my immaturity and my marks about Marvel movies, and they'll love you too. You see, the testimony should have the gospel. Christ died for me. I was a sinner. I deserve wrath. By faith, he forgave me. Now, maybe you're here and you don't know the gospel very clearly or you can't clearly explain it in a few sentences, then I'd encourage you to start there. You forgot the fundamentals. You forgot the basics of what it's all about. Start there. Go get retrained. Nobody's going to say, well, how dare you not know the basics? No, just come back in. Get plugged in. Pastor Bill mentioned Sunday school. We have various venues. Go to a small group. Pick up a book, a good book that I liked. That's a very clear short explanation of the gospel is what is the gospel by Greg Gilbert. What is the gospel by Greg Gilbert? Excellent little summary of the gospel. Doesn't say everything there is to say. No book does. It's a summary statement of the gospel. What is the gospel by Greg Gilbert? Get it. Learn it. Read it. Become fluent with it. Learn the scriptures. Christ suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God and be able to elaborate on any one of those points. Get training. Share what God has done for you. The next point on your mission is God's mission, or God's mission is your mission, is your mission should extend to everybody under your sphere of influence. To everybody under your sphere of influence. As soon as Nebuchadnezzar came to his right mind, he's writing a letter to all peoples, nations, and languages. Let me tell you something. Everybody under your sphere of influence is your mission. So let me ask you, who's in your sphere? Of course, that would include yourself. Did you know you need the gospel and you need the message of God every day? There's never a point at which you don't think or that you should not think that you don't need the gospel message. You need it every single day. The day you forget that, you're in trouble. We need it every day for ourselves, your family, your children, your spouse, your extended family. This can be some difficult mission field right here, isn't it? Our sphere of influence with our extended family, sometimes this can be real difficult, but don't give up. Be patient with people. Remember, God's working is in the decades. Extended family, close friends, perhaps childhood friends, other friends, 
co-workers, the people at your work, if you're if you're an employee, then, then your fellow employees, praying for, seeking opportunity, having dialogue, loving them, caring for them. People aren't projects. They're made in the image and likeness of God, so you love them where they're at. Truly love them. Your coworkers, your neighbors. That's the second great commandment, isn't it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I wonder if we were really literal with that, what that would look like in our churches. If we, if we took it literally. Do you know your neighbors around you? Do you know their names? Have you ever tried to talk to them? Have you had them over for dinner? Have you reached out to them in some way, shape, or form? Do you know your neighbors? Love them. They're in your sphere of influence. The next part is don't be on mission alone. Don't be on mission alone. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't on mission alone. Do you think he randomly made a quote that sounded like it was out of Psalm 145 without help? Nope. Nebuchadnezzar had Daniel in his courts. Undoubtedly, Daniel was helping him, counseling him, answering his questions, fielding his concerns. Who'd Daniel have? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. Don't be on mission alone. Live in community and share the love of Jesus in community. Yes, invite people to church. Hear me, KBC. It's good to invite people to church, but we need a generation of Christians who are not content with only inviting people to church. Hear that? We need a generation of Christians that is not content with only inviting people to church. Yes, invite. That's good. That's nothing, nothing wrong with that. That's awesome. We, and if you're here as a visitor, we love people. We love all people. Thank you for being here. But my Christians, my ohana, let us not be content with merely inviting. God wants us to go. He wants us to meet people where they are, to love them there, to spend time with them, to tell them the gospel, and by God's grace, bring them into a gospel-shaped community. And beloved, just as God has a message for the nations then, He has a message for the nations now. That message is meant to be spoken by you. By you. This is the part of the sermon where we say, is He talking to me? Yes. That message is meant to be shared by you to every tribe, tongue, people, and language over which you have any influence. So let us go today and tell all what the Most High God has done for me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your dominion is an everlasting dominion. Your kingdom will reign forever. It endures to all generations. May we worship you alone. And Father, may we be encouraged out of here to be patient with those around us. May we be encouraged out of here to be on mission to those under our sphere of influence. And Father, I do pray, as we said earlier, if there are any here like Nebuchadnezzar seeking, seeking help, seeking connection to the divine, may they come to you through Christ. May they see the forgiveness offered to them. 
And if there are any here who are hardened in sin, maybe they're not even looking, they don't even care. Would you stir them now as they consider the end of their life? As they consider what will become of their life, may they see only the things done in service to the king, the true king, will last. May they live for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.